The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. <laughs> I'm Khalees Smith. I know my name. Later in the show, we head straight into the fungal kingdom where the rules are weird and the denizens are tasty. What? No. It's just a tour with local mushroom growers, Michael Terra Farm in South Deerfield. Fine, fine. But we'll also have a conversation with Kari Castango, who has just completed swimming the entirety of the Connecticut River. She'll be joined by the new director of the Connecticut River Conservancy, Rebecca Todd. Our first guest is Holly Black, the number one New York Times bestselling author of over 30 fantasy novels for kids and teens. She has been a finalist for an Eisner Award and the Lodestar Award, a recipient of the Maya... Maya... How do you say that one? That award you want? Mythopoeic. Mythopoeic Award, a nebula, and a Newberry honor. Her books have been translated into 32 languages worldwide and adapted for film. She currently lives here in the 413 with her husband and son in a house with a secret library. Holly has just co-written a book called Sir Morian. Her co-author also joins us. Khalees Smith is a poet, <laughs> originally from Roxbury in Boston. After graduating from Kenyon College, she released her book, Finger and Thumb. She currently lives right here in Springfield and is the flipping co-host of this show. Yeah. Congratulations, Hi. you two. <laughs> Thanks. On Sir Morian. Khalees, you told me, I think it felt like three or four years ago. It was definitely longer than that. <laughs> I'm co-writing a book with Holly Black, and I was like, oh, my God, Holly Black. I love Holly Black, all of her fantasy. I'd, my, me and my whole family love the Spiderwick Chronicles, which you co-wrote, Holly, with mm-hmm. Tony Dietrich Lizzie. And then I didn't hear about it again for years. There was like a three-year window <laughs> where things just didn't happen. That is the way that books work. I mean, this is your second book, Khalees, but Holly... This, okay. Is this how is no. this the usual is, pace for a book release? It is. It is not. However, I was warned that this is the pace for picture books, oh. and that um, because you know we <laughs> took a took a minute to to, to write it and <laughs> it work did. it out. You know, we would meet up at different coffee shops and you know uh, get it together. Uh, but then when they attached Ebony, you know, she does a lot of work. Uh, and so she had to fit us into her schedule. And Ebony is Ebony Glenn, who illustrated this gorgeous book. So and fantastic. Yes, nobody wants to see my drawings. <laughs> I kind of do now. I mean, but I think for they're this not book, nearly as good as what Emily d- Ebony did. I am real good at you're words nervous because you're the guest yeah, today. This Khalid. doesn't happen. Usually, I just get to ask the questions. <laughs> for those who don't know about Sir Morian. Let's ask you, Khalees, about who's, who <laughs> oh, Sir Morian is, the co-author of Sir Morian with Holly Black, Khalees Smith. So Sir Morian is the creatively named Black Knight of the Ryan Table. <laughs> Why would they call him that? Well, <laughs> um, because Moors are brown. And so everybody brown was kind of considered a Moor at the time. Am I right about this? Yeah. So uh, be- because uh, Europe and... But there is a, a a romance about Sir Morian joining the Round Table. Uh, he goes on adventures uh, with uh, <laughs> um, Sir Gawain and Lancelot, and is looking for his dad, Sir Aglavale. Where did you um, encounter this story, Holly Black? Because this is, I mean, the Arthurian legends are legends, and there's mm-hmm. little bits of actual history woven into those sort of things. Where did you and Khalees come across this story of Sir Morian? 
So in in sort of reading through Arthiana, um, you know, there are some stories that you come too late because they are not part of the popular, you know, ways that we retell the Arthurian story. And, you know, the story of Sermorian was one of them. And it was really surprising to me because I did not know that Sermorian was a member of the Round Table. Yeah. And, He's not um, a Monty Python in the Holy Grail. <laughs> That's yes. the only Arthur. And then, right. And that's canon. And I mean, honest, that's, you know. Honestly, we're all glad of that because it would <laughs> oh, have been God. done in a way that is not really yes. great. <laughs> uh, you can be sure of that. Yes. And, you know, I admit that, you know, part of it was um, after um, I adopted my son, who's black, I was looking for more representation and specifically more representation in the landscape of folklore and fantasy. Mm. And I, you know, I don't remember whether I ever ran into Sermorian before that, but I remember feeling really kind of su- surprised to be thinking about it and then realize that I was having a lot of trouble finding more resources for it. And certainly I didn't find any picture books. Yeah. <laughs> And so now there is a picture book. When does this book officially come out, Khalees? It comes out next Monday. <laughs> yeah, <officially>. I mean. <laughs> next Monday is when it comes out officially. It comes out next Tuesday. <laughs> no, it, this is the twenty third on the on the thing. Books only come out on Tuesdays. Okay, well, fine. See, this is the things you learn when you have uh, are working on your second book with somebody who's written so many books well, and also, is the number like, one. New my York first time. book was poetry. Like I didn't have to care. I just made the poems. I put them out and expected no one to read them. Yeah. And <laughs> now this is a thing where. I have to pay way, way more attention to than the last endeavor that I was a part of. And you'll find Khalees missing from several shows because of things that are uh, connected to the book Sir That's Morian. Right. The book launch is happening at uh, an unlikely story in Plainville, Massachusetts, out of the 413, but an excellent bookstore that was created by Jeff Kinney, the author of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. If you're ever in the 508 area code, I can't recommend <laughs> that bookstore uh, more highly. Um how did this relationship begin between Holly Black, the author, and Khalees Smith, who had not yet written a children's book or any type of uh, book like this apart from a book of, of poetry? So we met through um, a mutual friend and uh, just started hanging out and talking about books we'd read. And um, I do remember one time Khalees came over and I had a copy of Finger and Thumb and she was like, where did you get this? And I was like, I bought it. It's for sale. I was pretty sure that was out of print now. Finger and Thumb is your book of poetry that we mentioned. Yeah. And that's where the creative relationship started to begin? Or how did it how did it germinate that you two wanted to write this particular book together? So Holly approached me and asked if I would work on adapting this story for uh, as a children's book and I like a challenge so I was like sure that seems real fun and what came next was this really brilliant breakdown of the romance itself from Holly in a very YA fashion that I still basically refer to whenever I am trying to give the cliff notes of what Sir Morian actually is mm-hmm. as a story to people like I I channel your voice whenever I'm <laughs> I'm explaining Zermorian to other people. It's like, and then they fight for a bunch of days, and then like he can't get any any information because racism. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I agreed to to work on it with her, and we just kept meeting at coffee shops, like you said, and to get it tight and change the language to be something that was way more accessible than Arthurian English. Yeah. And, you know, Cleese being a poet, 
was really great because she could could keep me from expanding. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because many people, uh, many of my friends who are write very, very long books have mocked me for how short my books are. But compared to this, yes, you know, they are enormous tomes. How many how many pages in a picture book? There's like a, a rule, right? 32 32 we pages. And there's it's not like it, it is filled with text. No. So how hard is it for two people to write one 32-page book with so few words? You spend a lot of time together saying, so this sentence, what if it was slightly different? <laughs> <laughs> and some of that we get around with going, hey, maybe we make this a speech bubble and then it doesn't count as our text. <laughs> ah, because are you try? Are, are like the publishers saying, don't put too many words in this picture book? Like, are you, uh, is, there, is there a formula to how many words should be in a picture book geared towards kids this There's age? There's not a formula. Yeah, I don't think there is. But it has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Picture books used to be much more text heavy. Um, and the age of the picture book reader used to be a lot older. And it's interesting. It has become a much younger form and a much shorter form. And in part, I think some of that has to do with, with uh, parents reading to kids at night. Yeah. They want to get this thing over get, with. Right, they want right, to be today. able to, to get through it <laughs> at, a, at a reasonable clip. Um, <laughs> this, this sounds like maybe experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're speaking with the number one New York Times bestselling author, Holly Black, and our very own Khalees Smith from the Fabulous 413, who have co-authored this book, which will come out next Tuesday, because now I know that's when books come out, just like when records used to come out, but now they come out on Fridays. Sir Morian, The Legend of a Knight of the Round Table. It's illustrated beautifully by Ebony Glenn. For some reason, it reminds me of like 90s animation and also Dragon Slayer, the uh, video game. The the illustrations in this. That's a good Venn diagram. Yeah, I don't know why. That's what it jumps out to me. And um, it is about a so-called Black Knight of the Round Table who was a Moor and loosely based in Arthurian legends, which may or may not be true to a certain degree or not. Hard to tell. Um, But what I love about this is it's clear that your hero is black. But the... It's not a huge tenant of the storyline. Is that by design where it's just about seeing yourself in this book rather than having to overcome the trials and tribulations of racism explicitly? I think yes, in no small part, because the part of the text where he encounters problems because of his race, we just had to wholeheartedly like cut out. Like we, It's a little complicated for the age group in the way that we need to approach it. Mm. And so it's just easier to be like, no, he's just brown. Hey. What did you encounter when doing the research about this character, Sir Warren, that were some of the um, the racist things that he did encounter in this time frame? So just... What we did was sort of scoop out the middle of the story. Yeah. Um, because it is a complicated, it's a slightly complicated story. And we told everything that happens in this book happens in the, the romance, as, as Clarice was saying, which is what they call them, um, even though they're not necessarily romantic in the way we think of them. Right. But, right. but his story is one specific story, and he <laughs> is hanging out uh, with his new night friends, and then they, they get to a crossroads, and they split up, and they have three different adventures. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> essentially... Uh, Sir Morian is the only one who chooses the correct path. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, unfor- but unfortunately for a picture book, the correct path is he doesn't wind up in a huge fight with somebody. So the other two knights make 
disastrous mistakes. Uh huh. So Morian goes to town where he encounters racism in the form of not being um, not being allowed into a place. He gets super hungry, and he cannot get food. But mm. no one will. And he's he is. As a young man, when he gets hungry, he gets hangry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so he's having a really rough time. Yes, because he's really angry. Think, and he's trying to get a, a barge to the, the hermitage where his dad oh, right. is, and they won't let him board the boat for the same right. reason. And then he, yes. And so he runs back into, he saves one of them. I don't remember which one. He saves Gawain first. Right. Because Gawain has gotten himself they into have... some some terrible trouble sleeping with the wrong person and angering an entire town. You can see why we didn't put this in the picture. But... <laughs> <laughs> and then they have to go rescue Lancelot from a terrible fight he's gotten into with a beast because Lancelot just goes off and fights beasts. That's what he does. But this one was a little bit more than he could handle. Just, frankly, like Lancelot in this whole romance getting yes. into fights he shouldn't be in That's a thousand percent and then he jumps onto the barge they're like you can't be on this whoa here you are <laughs> yeah some of that gets left out of this 32 page version of the story but, but it's still if we do a sequel That's i have an idea for how we could do this stuff. Okay. Oh. i'm down what about expanding it into more of a, a ya type situation are there any um uh, appropriate books for kids who are teenagers in today's contemporary world that talk about Sir Morian, this knight of the round table who was black? That's a great question. Because um, I know a, a number one New York Times bestselling author who's written such great YA <laughs> fantasy. There is a really great um, series of books, which I am now absolutely i'm going to find and i'm blanking on them but it's by um it's by a black writer and it centers a girl who um discovers her ancestry so it's not specifically about um sir morian but i cannot recommend it highly enough and i'm gonna find it (laughs) we can include it with the podcast and uh and before i leave today i will tell you because i can't believe that i'm blanking on it uh but it is legend born okay so good Cool. Cannot recommend it highly enough. Yay. Before we let you go, Holly Black, and before Kalee Smith returns to her role as co-host of Where the show. Where I can actually like speak instead of just stuttering the whole time. What What do you want the reader to leave with when they read this book? First with you, Holly. Um, I want them to have a great time. It's a celebration of friendship. And um, it's a little bit about how sometimes you fight with your friends. Uh huh. Um, and so I have. I hope they have fun, and I hope they uh, feel warm inside. What about you, author Kalise Smith? <laughs> what do you want the reader to leave with when they read your new book with Holly Black, Sir Mori, and the Legend of A Knight of the Round Table? Yeah, I think one of the main things that we wanted to keep was like this this idea that of a friendship and kind of building community, um, and. Even if you're looking outside of your means in a, a, a sort of way that like maybe having people on your side can make things a little bit easier. Even if you fight, you can still kind of get through it. Kalee Smith and Holly Black. The new book is Sir Morian. It's out on Tuesday. You're going to hear more about this book from the kids from NEPM's Media Lab who did an interview with Kalise back in the summer. That's coming up It was so much easier to talk weeks. to them instead of you. <laughs> <laughs> Too much inside baseball. This book is great. It's wonderful. It's gorgeous. The illustrations by Ebony Glenn are wonderful, and we will continue to talk about it 
uh, as the book launches out there. Well, but thanks for having us. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Later in the show, Kari Costango, who just became the first person to swim the entire length of the Connecticut River. We'll also talk with the brand new executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy, Rebecca Todd. Up next, Into the Mushroom Kingdom, which you may know better as South Deerfield, will take you to Mycoterra Farm. But there are no plumbers and no princesses and no turtles. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Well, here we are at Mushroom Headquarters in Western Mass in Deerfield with uh, Mycoterra Farm, which grew out of a basement and ended up being the biggest growing indoor mushroom facility in Massachusetts. It's been such a wet year, I have mushrooms growing in my basement right now. That is probably not how you got started, is it? Julia Coffee here in South Deerfield? No, I didn't get started with the moldy basement, but I get that question a lot. Uh, we grow our mushrooms indoors year-round. I actually got into mushrooms uh, through a fascination in the soil sciences, and it's been an over 20-year journey now, which uh, landed us here in South Deerfield, CESA's home base. It's a great wild mushroom season, though. We get a lot of people bringing stuff to get our expert identification, which I really don't like to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit of a life-or-death situation if you get it yes. wrong. Yeah. And all the rain this year has made a, a really fantastic summer and fall for wild mushroom forest. But we just keep them going year-round. Do you ever sprout from wild spore? No. The cultivation technique we use for growing is a vegetative propagation technique. We work with established cultures of mycelium growing on grain. Uh, that's the spawn. And the process that we use is more like dividing strawberries or planting potato tubers. You get a more consistent and reliable result. You're going to have a business. You have to yeah. figure out a way to rely on it. You don't want to yes. just fight your way through all 435 genders of mushroom to <laughs> yeah. find the couple that'll give you the proper Fruiting? Exactly. <laughs> Can we go meet the mushrooms? You want to meet the mushrooms? Yeah. Well, you're starting here in our farm store. This is like the very end of the road for uh, the mushrooms. And we have our products, mushroom jerky, mushroom kits, dried mushrooms, fresh mushrooms, mushroom extracts, and a number of other products from other local farms and producers. But we're going to go back through the building. First, we're going to go into our commercial kitchen. Mmm, um, smells good in here. The kitchen the kitchen was funded by the Food Security Infrastructure Grant. Uh, we use it for our value-added processing, and we uh, make it available for other local producers, food carts, farms. Is that why there's a bunch of food trucks parked outside? Exactly. <laughs> That's where they live when they're not out serving us. They live here at Mycoterra. All right, we're going to continue through. This is some dry storage area and home of mass food delivery. Uh, in addition to Mycoterra Farm, I run mass food delivery. We established it during the pandemic to be able to continue to connect our products with our customers and we source products from local farms and producers throughout Massachusetts. Here we go behind this we're, giant door. We're going through mass food deliveries, walk-in cooler real quick. We have a lot of different environments here. Yeah, right. It's going to totally throw off It's cold now. Equilibrium. It smells mushroomy in this room. Always a lot of smells here. It is a farm. Right here, we are preparing our substrate. The substrate is the mushroom's food, it's uh, growing habitat. In uh, this ribbon mixer, we're mixing hardwood sawdust with, it looks like we're doing shiitake substrate today, so that's getting supplemented with wheat bran. We adjust the moisture content and then we bag the material into a specialized autoclavable plastic bag that's outfitted with 
with the little filter patch that filters out contaminants down to 0.2 microns, uh, but allows gas exchange. The mycelium, uh, the vegetative part of the mushroom life cycle, breathes oxygen and respires carbon dioxide. So it does need fresh air, but that filter patch is really important in keeping out competitors. So, so mushrooms are like people because they breathe oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide? Yeah, actually the fungal kingdom and uh, the animal kingdom. Is that kingdom. where Mario and Luigi try to... Um your princess is in another castle. <laughs> the mushroom kingdom and the fungal kingdom have a more recent common ancestor than any other kingdom. So we are more closely related to mushrooms than we are plants, bacteria, viruses, or anything else. Nice. So More disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> See or play The Last of Us. Fungus is also like one of those last science frontiers where they're still not quite sure how it works. That's one of the things that really attracted me to the mycology field. I, I was like young 20s and kind of jaded. And the fact that there are so many undescribed species and their physiology and chemistry, there's still a lot of mystery in the fungal kingdom. And like mystery just keeps life exciting. You don't have to go to space to find aliens. They yeah. are both <laughs> under the sea and under your dirt. <laughs> right now we're mixing the substrate and bagging it. The substrate bags get folded and put on these carts. Uh, we cook 900 bags a day. The carts get pushed into our autoclave. It's uh, basically a large pressure cooker. It's five feet in diameter and 33 feet long. We're gonna fit 10 carts with 90 bags each and uh, that's gonna get sterilized at 20 PSI for four hours. We're gonna go back to that door and I'm gonna take you in to see the, uh, the lab environment. I feel like a lot of magic happens in there. Now this room smells real mushroomy. Oh, we gotta take our shoes off. There's some booties. It's just like being at home. Shaking my booty. Mushrooms happening. Yeah, so, already. yeah, tell us what's happening in this room that we just put the booties so, on. What we're seeing look like giant bags of dirt with little mushrooms poking out of them. And some of them look like shiitakes and some of them look like king trumpet. These are all shiitakes in here. So we call this our lab ante room. It's basically a staging room for the fully colonized uh, material that's ready to go out to the greenhouses. What you're looking at here are things that started to auto fruit or began fruiting in the lab. We don't want them fruiting in there. Mm -hmm. So these are getting pulled to move out and uh, they've gotten a little ahead of us. So, and are you still going to be able to use these? Oh yeah, we can uh -huh. still grow from them. We'll remove the mushrooms that formed inside the bag when we get them started. And that's like deadheading a petunia or plant in the garden. If you uh, remove the fruits that are on there, it redirects the energy into yeah. the viable crop. So we, now we can cross this line. Here's another room filled with thousands of bags of substrate, which looks like dirt. Whoa. Hours into the autoclave. <laughs> The giant pressure cooker autoclave has a, a tunnel that looks like a black hole with train tracks coming out of it. Right into our cool down room. So this room is insulated from the rest of the lab. It has a clean air intake. After we open the autoclave in the morning, the racks get unloaded into this room and uh, allowed to cool down for a couple hours. Maintaining an environment that is conducive for the mushrooms we're trying to grow helps them stay resilient against any competitor organisms. Once the bags come down in temperature, it takes a couple hours to reach about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The carts get rolled out into our inoculation space. So we can go along the journey that our blocks fall. Hello. Here's a bag of spawn, and 
This is a mix of grains that has the mushroom mycelium living on it. Mycelium, that vegetative tissue, grain is a great vehicle for transfer. It's got a good balanced nutrition to support the mycelial growth. It has a good form. It helps protect the mycelium. That six pound bag of grain will be used to inoculate 30 bags of sterilized sawdust. We'll load 30 bags onto this table in front of laminar flow hoods. Uh, it's a HEPA filter with a half horsepower blower pushing high velocity air through the filter and gives us a sterile air flow to work in front of. Then they get shelved and labeled and uh, rolled into position for incubation. Incubation is just the process of where the mycelium grows from the grain spawn and through the sawdust and literally transforms it into a fungal organism. We have in the middle of the room here uh, a lot of the exotic varieties, lion's mane, a number of different oyster species, piapino, chestnut. All of those tend to incubate pretty quickly from say two to three weeks for the lion's mane or four to six weeks for the piapino and chestnut. And then uh, the majority of the blocks in this room are shiitake. Shiitake we incubate for anywhere from six to 12 weeks, uh, the longer the better. The longer the shiitake incubates on the hardwood sawdust, the more nutrients it can gather and the higher higher yields. Mm. We've got probably 120,000 shiitake blocks in this room and a few hundred of each of the other species. Wow. We're here at Mycoterra in South Deerfield where they're growing probably millions of mushrooms right now with Julia Coffey, who's giving us the scientific tour of how all of this stuff happens and with Bill Corman from Season Local Hero Folk. So Julia, You've talked a little bit about your path here. How's it gone in terms of what path have you blazed that maybe others have followed a bit but was not here before your work? I started Myco Farm in 2010 in a closet in my basement. We've gone through many stages of growth. My path uh, into mushrooms really started at Evergreen State College studying soil science. Really, uh, my big interest is natural resource systems and resiliency and soil building. The mushrooms have been a fantastic side tangent for me in this journey. In 2019, I was awarded an MDAR composting grant, which has uh, really helped me come full circle in my journey. The MDAR composting grant allowed me to buy an in-vessel composting system to compost our spent substrate and uh, bring it back to the soil. So I like I've just been growing this farm really so I can have uh, some fantastically valuable trash to (laughs) (laughs) then compost. And uh, we now have a half acre of no-till seasonal crops. Our our substrate is mushroom compost. And this year when there was flooding devastation across farms and even this building and lab flooded, that field was like a sponge. I, I did some calculations earlier in the year. I believe the average carbon per acre in East Coast agriculture is about eight tons per acre. We have about 40 tons of carbon in our half acre out there. So our compost is an amazing bank for storing soil carbon. We, we started compost sales this year and I'm looking to grow that and uh, to feed the soils on other farms in the valley starting next year. I keep the mushroom farm going so I can really keep diving into this compost. Like <laughs> you said, there's just so many things in the fungal kingdom to learn. 
Essentially, all of these bags are one organism. That's spooky. It is Halloween season after right. all. So, also a bit like cancer research. Yeah. It, it can really be humbling when I'm realize that like I'm surrounded by biomass. It's got that like Ghostbusters library feel. Yeah, to definitely. Right here. It's... Where is Slimer? <laughs> he slimed me. That's great! You say that about like the Ghostbusters library and we were literally walking into this dark unlit corner yeah. <laughs> with eight foot tall shelves full of all of these organisms right beside us. Listen. You smell something? All of these probably millions of mushrooms in separate bags come from two living things. Yes, there's two organisms surrounding us right now, and there's uh, about 120,000 units of them. You, me, Khalees, and Phil, we still outnumber them. <laughs> that mushroom library was really just incubation happening. Once the mycelium has colonized that sawdust and brought it to a critical state, then the blocks get removed from the lab and brought back to the back half of the building where we have greenhouses enclosed in the larger warehouse space. Uh, shiitake is our primary crop. It amounts for about 80% of the 3,000 pounds we're growing a week. The shiitake initiation process um, starts with refrigeration. That gives them a cold shock. Uh, what we're doing is simulating natural environmental triggers to help bring on a good flush of mushrooms. We do have some lion's mane and oyster in the shiitake house right Black now. oysters. This is a blue oyster strain. It's like a cult. <laughs> it, really? It's the first time I heard that, Monty. Yeah, right? <laughs> we can go over to the actual oyster house now and take a look at some more oysters and other varieties in action. New colors, new flavors. Lions made in addition to being delicious, look like brains while they're growing. Yeah, they're it's huge. Awesome. It's great that they look like brains and have so many benefits. Nature's great with those things. So we have some first crop blue oysters here. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. They're really exciting to see. They're so cute. Uh, you could spend two or three hours harvesting this whole house. We start at one end and go down each rack from top to bottom. If it takes you, say, three hours, you can get back to your starting point, and uh, material that wasn't mature when you started has grown. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and so they can just keep you running in circles all summer. Then here we have the chestnut mushroom. I love chestnut mushrooms. Yeah, they I think they're called the chestnut because as they form, they have these beautiful ornaments that kind of look like spines, and they also have a nice nutty taste. We're getting sprayed right now. What's oh. happening? And our overhead misting system just kicked on. <laughs> so we use a high-pressure misting system to uh, maintain that humid environment. Walking through Mycoterra in South Deerfield with Julia Coffey, who's the scientists behind all of these mushrooms. It, it's different. There is so much science to farming, but the fungal kingdom kind of plays by its own rules. It definitely has more of a feel of a manufacturing facility in agriculture. I'd say uh, nursery work compares most. Basically what we're doing is playing God. And the, for me, I found a lot of God in science. And so what we're trying to do is mimic the conditions they need in the natural world and uh, trick them into uh, giving us food year round. And I'm sure they're just like, they're like who's tricking who? Because <laughs> <laughs> Here we are back in the Mycoterra farm store. 
more environmentally. We've just been through like all of the climates of the world, it feels like, in, in the back there. I do that all day, every day, yeah. like 12 different temperature and humidity environments. So two questions. One is how and where do people get your mushrooms? And the second is how do people find out more about growing mushrooms or a tour for themselves of, the, of your facility? Our mushrooms are available at the River Valley Food Co-ops and a number of farm stores in the Valley, Atlas Farm Store right in our neighborhood and in our very own farm store here. This month we have a couple events coming up on the 26th. We'll actually be hosting CISA here for a farm tour. We will be offering our tour on a sliding scale for donations to the Farm Resiliency Fund and donations over $25. Folks will be able to take home one of our mushroom growing kits. So one of those blocks that you saw in the lab you can take home and grow your own at home. Then on the 28th, we will be doing a mushroom growing workshop at Gardener's Supply in Hadley. Uh, we'll be going over the, all of our mushroom kits and uh, log inoculation practices. So if folks really find they want to take a dive into mushroom growing, there'll be a great opportunity there. Growing your own mushrooms is really fun. That's Have you done it? I've done it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do it in a closet in your basement? Uh, sort of, yes. It's actually like the, the stairs going down to the basement. Nice. But yes. Now that I have a wet basement, I might as well grow mushrooms down there, right? I often say grow it on a dinner plate on your kitchen counter so you don't forget about it. They actually require <laughs> light to grow properly, and you want to make sure you can water. And then once those mushrooms pop, start to pop out, they grow very quickly. So if you have them down in your basement and aren't looking at them on a daily basis... They take um, over the home. <laughs> they get a little overgrown and uh, maybe attract some bugs. So just right on the kitchen counter, you can harvest them and literally steps to the fry pan. You really don't get fresher food than that. Phil, Julia did mention that donations to the Farm Resiliency Fund will get you a tour of Mycoterra and a block of mushrooms to bring home to grow on your own. There's new uh, developments in the world of this farm resiliency fund well just that uh, farmers have only until this friday to apply for the second and final round through the united way of central mass and uh, all the information is on the central mass united way fund spot and also at cisa but the bottom line is that if a farm applied in the first round they only can apply in the second round if their needs are eighty thousand dollars or greater if a farm did not apply in the first round it's game to go for them. Thanks so much for telling us all about mushrooms. You're welcome. Great to have you here, Moni. Now to buy some mushrooms. <laughs> I did buy some mushrooms. Up next, Kari Castango. Oh my goodness. Like, apparently it's not just that segment. It's just today. You got all this adrenaline coursing through your veins because of talking about your book. Uh, up next, Kari Castango, who just became the first person to swim the entire length of the Connecticut River, will also talk with the brand new executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy, Rebecca Todd. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We are joined by Kari Castengo, a resident of South Hadley who just completed her 410-mile swim of the entirety of the Connecticut River. Kari began her career as a research exercise physiologist at UMass, which then led her to pursue a PhD in biostatistics at the University of Pittsburgh. She also serves on the board of the Connecticut River Conservancy. And speaking of that organization, we're also joined by the brand new executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy, Rebecca Todd. 
Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you both for for having us. This, uh, there's a great story, first of all, Rebecca Todd today in the Greenfield Recorder about you and uh, taking over that organization. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a bit. But the big story with this weekend, after years of swimming, but not consecutively. Correct. Yeah, because that would just be too, you'd get well, the years, hands. The years, are, the years are consecutive, but not the swimming. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. stopped in between. 410 <coughs> miles swimming the entirety of the length of the Connecticut River. The first person to do this? Yes, as... That we know of, yes. Right. And is this been like chronicled by like the Guinness Book of World Records or anything like that? Did you have, did you attempt? I know there's hoops you have to jump through if you want to get into that Book of World Records. But <laughs> Well, the thing is, I don't want to be in the Book of World Records because this isn't, this whole swim hasn't been about conquering the river or setting goals. It's been about creating a relationship with the river and having connection. Tell me about where this idea came from and why. Um, well, I, when I moved into the area, there wasn't any immediate lakes and ponds, and I was swimming at the fabulous uh, Holyoke YMCA, but I was tired of doing flip turns. Uh, and yeah. a friend introduced me to the Connecticut River, and the first spot was uh, Elwell Recreational Area, which is actually one of my f- favorite spots along the river. Um, Where is that? That's just next to the Coolidge Bridge, where okay. actually oh. where we were. We went. That's where we went swimming back yes. in 2018. Yeah. As part of this journey, really. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then, it's. I mean, it's a wonderful spot. But then there's the Coolidge Bridge and the Route 202 Bridge, and I thought, well, it would be fun to go from, you know, cover that distance because I don't, I don't like to necessarily stay in one spot in a sense of adventure and get to know that part of the river and then I did that and then I did Sunderland down to uh, Coolidge Bridge and then I thought let's go for the whole river but admittedly when I originally said that to myself I thought it was 200 miles long and I figured I better google this (laughs) it was 410 and I'm like all right twice the twice the distance twice the fun so when was that very first swim that you were mentally saying this is this is part of swimming the river and then how long ago was that? Well, technically, that was in 2018. Uh-huh. However, I opted to uh, re-swim, re-swim what I swam in 2018 to be able to swim with seven Norwegian coins, mm. which, as I'm showing to you here right now, I just have three left because I've given four away. Um, but... Um, I want. I thought it would be neat to hold the coins and have the power and and the strength and that and to say that they've gone the four hundred and ten. So tell, I, us, tell us about the coins. Where? where? Well, they're uh, they're Norwegian coins. So I happen to have gone back to Norway with my mother. Um, she's from Norway. I'm first generation American, and we um, went. It was a special trip to go to Denmark because my great-grandfather was from there. And it just happened to be when you exchange currency, you have some left over. And um, the Norwegian coins are such that um, by design they have holes in them because uh, back during the war, the currency was much less than I believe it was Denmark. And in order to be able to distinguish the coins, just much like the Canadian quarter and the U.S. quarter, uh, holes were put in the Norwegian coins so they can make the difference. And it just as a symbol of uh, my f- uh, family heritage. Um, I'm also um, part Ukraine. 
um, the Baltic area, and um, it just, they helped motivate me because at times when things got tough, it's like, we got to go get the, the coins down the river. Call upon your ancestors to help guide exactly. you. Exactly. Indeed. Uh, what was the most difficult section of of the route to do? Um, well, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, what popped up in my head from one perspective is logistics. Um, this past year, uh, I pretty much had... Um, majority work all the distance was at least a three and a half hour drive one mm. way so just getting up there physically and then not having uh, not knowing that r- section of the river intimately made it s- somewhat challenging however um, Tim Lewis um, who's been phenomenal and he's paddled the entire river ha- has been a tremendous uh, resource and a great friend for he, me. He kind of kept an eye on you while you were swimming to make sure that you were safe, right? Correct. Both of you are board members of the Connecticut River Conservancy as well? Yes. So this was done not only for your own you know, self-actualization or for yeah. fun, or but to, to draw awareness to the work of the Connecticut River Conservancy and, and your volunteerism on the board? Absolutely. And actually, I, it was just this past June that I became a uh-huh. trustee. Nice. Yeah. And Tim, how long is he, your, your boatman? Uh, has be involved with the Connecticut River Conservancy on the board uh, a year prior. Uh huh. But he's uh, he's the head of the uh, Great Meadows Trust uh, Land Trust Land Trust. So you've all been involved in this yeah. river preservation. Another thing I read about your journey was that you know you wanted to call attention to the fact that this the Connecticut River used to be called I think the best landscaped sewer in America, but now <laughs> is swimmable in all 410 miles. Right. That's that's correct. To show the power of we can go we can go back sometimes and, and make right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think I think this is what's interesting to me. Kari's dedication in swimming the river is mirrored by the dedication of many people who have spent their lives getting the Connecticut River to be a fishable, swimmable, drinkable river, uh, and it it wasn't always that way. Um, so we are. We are lucky to have the people with the kind of foresight and dedication uh, that that Carrie showed and that the Connecticut River Conservancy has been bringing to this watershed since 1952, <laughs> since 20 years before the Clean Water Act. Mm. That is Rebecca Todd, who's the brand new executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy, just started a week ago. And Kari Castango, who is on the board of trustees, who has just completed this weekend swimming the entirety, 410 miles of the Connecticut River. We're going to take a little break and we'll have more with the two of them coming up in just a bit. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are with Kari Castango and Rebecca Todd of the Connecticut River Conservancy. And Kari has just completed swimming the entirety of all 410 miles of the Connecticut River. I know that there was a a party, well, not necessarily a party, but a gathering of the Connecticut River Conservancy at the end of of this journey and in old Lyme, but were there other moments where the the organization like came out to meet you where while you were doing this swim? 
Um, short answer is no, but I, they were instrumental and very um, helpful with regarding uh, being a resource to um, connecting me with people at different parts of the river to either gain access, um, to help uh, troubleshoot certain areas, or just to gain a better understanding of, of the river. What did you do in certain locations? Like I live in Turner's Falls. There's mm-hmm. a huge dam that if you decide you're going to swim over it, you will die. <laughs> um, how, how did you how did you do that part? Well, I uh, how did you avoid death? How did you avoid death? Yeah. <laughs> no, I uh, exited the water, paid attention, or adhered to the safety signs. Went up to the um, came up to the buoys, came out, um, and then at a later point, put in just below Turner's Falls and. Uh, took advantage, actually, of the water release and covered the 11 miles from Turner Falls to Sunderland in two hours and eight minutes in the summer solstice of 2018. And that, I mean, is one of the issues that I think you're going to have to deal with now, Rebecca Todd, who is the executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy, what it means for the Connecticut River when all of a sudden the Northfield pumping station or a first light in Turner's Falls releases in large swath tons of water or redirects it to the different canals and what that means for the life of the aquaculture in the river. Are those some of the priorities that you and this new role as the executive director are going to be facing with the relicensing of these dams? Absolutely. We've, we, our staff have been working on the FERC relicensing of the main stem hydroelectric dams. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Thank you. Since, <laughs> since 2012. Uh, and relicensing comes up. It's really essentially a once-in-a-lifetime event for most people. So we are devoting significant resources to making sure that we are advocating for not only the communities and property owners along the banks of the Connecticut, but also the aquatic organisms that otherwise don't have a voice. like the federally endangered short-nosed sturgeon that is uh, right where we're mentioning right now and one of the only known spawning sites right there. And I'm sorry, and it's every, mm. what, 40 to 50 years? That yes, this is when, the re- is when relicensing mm. happens. So we are, we are friends. We are in the thick of it. Mm. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm uh, happy to say that uh, as the newest kid at, at the conservation, uh, at the conservancy, um, I am blessed with a fantastic staff. And um, as you can tell by our conversation with Kari this afternoon, tremendously dedicated board. And I just, I want to highlight that uh, Kari's uh, dedication was also inspired and incredibly athletic. uh, and she did it all by herself. She didn't have a corporate sponsor. She worked with the river. Uh, she didn't, as she said, she didn't conquer it. She she st- strove to understand the river in the best and the fastest way to, to make <laughs> yeah. it to make it downriver. And just to give our listeners some context, she swum the length of the Connecticut River, which is approximately the distance from Boston to Baltimore. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she swam it. Um, so uh, this this really, we're, we're all, I think, in awe of, of her uh, accomplishment. I know we've been talking about how long the trip was, like in, in terms of miles, but how long did it actually take you 
to finish the 410 miles. So I restarted the clock with the coins in 2019, and I pretty much uh, swam on the uh, weekends um, from Memorial Day to uh, early October. And uh, in 2000, I believe it was 21, and I took a four-month sabbatical to try to um, make more progress, and it was uh, quite a wet summer. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which makes it hard to swim in the river and not overly safe. You can go to the Connecticut River Conservancy's website, Is It Clean?, to find out if your part of the river is clean for swimming and boating. Hmm. In the minute we have left, Kari Castango, who just swam the length of the Connecticut River, what what's something that you learned about yourself from doing this huge athletic endeavor? Um, let's see. Myself. Just that, um, that it's that my love for swimming can make a difference and that I encourage everyone to find what it is that they enjoy and find a way to connect with their communities um, because everybody has something to offer. So originally I was not hesitant, but you know I just thought, well, I'm just swimming. I don't know what I'm contributing. Um, but everybody has something to contribute, and I invite you to find that out what that is and give back. Now we're here on the radio talking about the health of the river because of this wacky idea that you had. <laughs> I'm a sucker for a wacky idea like oh, that. Oh, pun no. intended. Kari <laughs> uh. <laughs> Castango, who just swam the length of the Connecticut River, and Rebecca Todd of the Connecticut River Conservancy, the brand new executive director. Congratulations on that role. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, a glimpse at the other candidate running for mayor of Pittsfield, Peter Marchetti. Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, witnesses the first Pakistani to become an astronaut when she flew last week with the space tourism company Virgin Galactic. And the word nerd Emily Brewster from Greenfield on Springfield's Noah Webster's successes and failures in changing the way we spell words in U.S. English. He had some good ideas. Not all of them flew. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Darling Side, Suitcase Junket, Blue Oyster Cult, Florence and the Machine, Ibeyi, Julie London, and Tina Turner. Our director is Tony journeyman juggler done our engineers are betsy ooh, vinyl lento phil lurkmaster flex bishop kara hoping tomorrow goes smoothly foster bart spare laptop conduit rankin and punk rude boy sharp cheddar dubay i'm monty belmonte i'm Kali smith we'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413